it's not so much, of course, that the ant is going after the individual reward of food, because remember that ants go out and get food and they bring it back. They don't eat it out there. They're not getting any kind of immediate reward. They bring it back to the nest and it's shared. So the individual reward response has been shaped into a kind of collective reward response. And the ants in some colonies are using dopamine as part of the process to decide whether it's worth it for everybody for that ant to go out. popular conception of ants is that anatomy is destiny. An ant's body type determines its role in the colony for once and ever. But this is not the case. Rather than forming rigid casts, ants act like a distributed computer in which tasks are reallocated as the situation changes. Division of labor implies a constant assembly line environment, not fluid adaptation to evolving conditions. But ants do not just graduate from one task to another as they age, they pivot to accept the work required by their colony in any given moment. In this agile and dynamic process, ants act more like verbs than nouns, light on specialization and identity, heavy on collaboration and responsiveness. What can we learn from ants about the strategies for thriving in times of uncertainty and turbulence? What are the algorithms that ants use to navigate environmental change? And how might they inform the ways that we design technologies? How might they teach us to invest more wisely, to explore more thoughtfully? Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. In this episode, we talk to SFI external professor Deborah Gordon at Stanford about the lessons we can learn from insect species whose individuals cannot be trained, but whose collective smarts have reshaped every continent. We muse on what the ants can teach us about a wide variety of real-world and philosophical concerns, including how our institutions age, how to fight cancer, how to build a more resilient internet, and why the notion of the individual is overdue for renovation. If you value our research and communication efforts, please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen. Rate and review us at Apple Podcasts and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. All right, Deborah Gordon, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I would like to start this conversation with you with a bit of biographical background to humanize your work as a researcher. So I'd love to know how you got into science and specifically how it is that you came to study ants. I got into science late. I was a French major and I was very interested in music theory. And in my senior year in college, I took a course in comparative anatomy and realized that there was pattern and structure in evolution in nature, as well as in music and things that people create. And 
After I graduated, I went to learn about my own anatomy, partly because I had the idea, which turned out not to be true, that if I could understand my own anatomy, I would be in charge of my own health. Uh, That's not true, really, because anatomy is only part of it. (laughs) But when you dissect a cadaver, everything you're looking at is dead, so you don't really know how it works. You only know what's there. But when I did that, I was partway to a master's in biology. And so I ended up doing a degree in biology kind of by accident. And once I did that, it seemed like the next step was to go to grad school for a PhD. And so I really landed in grad school without much understanding of what it meant to do research in science. And I was interested in animal behavior, but not very satisfied with the way that people were talking about animal behavior. And what really helped was to read about the history of developmental biology and ideas about what are now called complex systems. So in developmental biology, there has always been at the forefront this question of how is it that cells dividing can turn into embryos that turn into organisms. And there was a very explicit debate about whether you could understand how a cell is going to develop by looking only at the cell or if you had to understand interactions among cells. And so I came to ANTS for this very abstract reason that I was looking for a system where I could look at interactions and I could see everything. So at that time, it's still true now, but not as much. To look at the development of an embryo, you kind of had to track it for a while and then kill it and slice it up and look at it and then take another one that was a little bit older. And so you couldn't trace the trajectory in real time. And so I started working on ants because I wanted to look at a system like an embryo where I could watch everything happen as it happens. So that leads us directly into the first of your pieces that I wanted to discuss with you today, which is from division of labor to the collective behavior of social insects. So it makes sense to kind of anchor this, I think, this review piece in a bit of the history of research on ants and on the uh, the diversity of behaviors that we see ants engaged in and the problematic or inaccurate analogies and like metaphorical language that we're bringing into this. You know, you mentioned Adam Smith here coining this term, the division of labor, and that seems to set off this whole cascade of assumptions in entomology when people are looking at ants that you critique very articulately in this, I think. Right. So this idea, you argue, is not appropriate for ants, even though it certainly seems to be the way that ants are commonly understood and have been understood by researchers for a while. And so could you talk a little bit about the history of the research on this and how you attack this particular misunderstanding? When I started doing research on ants in the 80s, when I was a graduate student, the prevailing idea was that each ant had a task or a function that was genetically determined. So that if you wanted to understand how colonies are different or how behavior evolves, you would look at the distribution of ants in each task. So in this view, a colony that has more foragers would do more foraging. And so if it was a good thing to do more foraging, then evolution would favor colonies that had more foragers. So that way of thinking locates all the causes of the ant's behavior inside the ant. And it's really the same way of thinking that uh, we could use to understand how a brain works. We could say that each neuron has a certain job. And if we could only list all the tasks of every neuron, we would understand how the brain works. Or you could say the same thing about cells 
in an organism that each cell is a, a certain type. And then what the organism does is the aggregate of all those different individual components carrying out their tasks. But it seems pretty clear that nature doesn't work that way because we see that individual parts change function when what's going on around them changes. And so with respect to ants, what I learned is that individual ants switch tasks. And so the same ant doesn't always do the same task. And there's another side to it that even if you consider an ant to be assigned a certain task today, today this ant is a forager, that still doesn't tell you how much foraging that ant is going to do or when that ant is going to go out and forage. So that means you can't really understand what the colony is doing by listing the numbers of ants of each type because there's other processes that come from interactions among ants and interactions with the world around the ants that determine what ant does which task and whether it does it right now. Yeah. So this notion of this fluid task allocation of ants has developed somewhat over time. I mean, you mentioned that there was a a time in the 80s when there was some understanding that ants were not merely limited by their body type, by like size or size of specific parts. You know, people think about workers versus soldiers, I think, in the you know, the lay understanding. But that was replaced, at least temporarily, by this polyethism, this notion that ants are changing function as they age. And that's not, I mean, you mentioned that that's going on, but that's not adequate to describe what's going on here, right? So what was it that you and your colleagues found that demonstrated that that was not a sufficient explanation? Well, let's go back to that for a second. So ants and bees have in common that they live in colonies, they work collectively. There is one or more reproductive females that we call queens, although they don't tell anybody what to do, and they lay the eggs. And then all the ants or bees that you see flying around or walking around are sterile female workers. Now, honeybees have been domesticated by people for 10,000 years, and they have been selected to change tasks. So what we want bees to do is to go out and forage and collect pollen and carry the pollen around and pollinate our crops. And so we have selected bees to make the transition from working inside the nest when they're younger to going outside and foraging when they're older. So that's very well known that bees change tasks. That got a little bit confused with the idea in ants, actually minority of species, just not all ant species, but some ant species, the workers come in different sizes. They are adults They don't grow from one size to another. So an ant, when it emerges from the pupa, is either a small one or a larger one. And the idea was that those sizes were associated with task. So that in those species where there were ants of different sizes, the the ants of one size would do one thing and the ants of another size would do another thing. So there were really two different views of how it works that in fact, don't fit together very well. One was the idea from honeybees that a bee moves from working inside to outside, so she changes task over her lifetime. And the other was the idea that ants of different sizes are each assigned a task and they just do that task. So people started to look at this idea of temporal polyethism in ants and see that ants do, like bees, move from one task to another. The further step is to understand how that changes in response to changing conditions. So it isn't just that an ant moves from one task to another along some predetermined trajectory, but instead the colony shifts around the numbers of ants 
allocated to different tasks as conditions are changing. So it's a dynamic process and it depends not only on what kind of ant it is, but also on how the ants interact with each other and how that's related to what the colony needs, which is related to how things are changing around it. So for example, if there's extra food, a colony might allocate more ants to go out and get the food. So in harvester ants, which is a species of ant that I've worked on a lot, if there's more food, then ants from other tasks will switch to become foragers. So they're not triggered to become foragers by something that happens inside them. They're triggered by the availability of food and the process that the colony has collectively for using interactions to get more ants to forage. Does that answer your question? Yes. And in reading this paper, I was struck by something that I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's very natural to fall into thinking about the implications for human organizations. As the pace seems to pick up in society, uh, the conversation has also accelerated, it seems, around the flexible assignment of labor, you know, rethinking the job description, agile organizations. And yet you have this lovely passage in this where you say, if there are 20 chefs in a restaurant and only 15 are needed to make dinner, and then if a few do not show up at work, there will be others to take over. But because the chefs are specialized on the day-to-day timescale, the janitor cannot do the work of a missing chef. Basically, in a distributed process, one component can replace a different one. In certain circumstances, janitors would cook and chefs would clean. Such a system might not produce a great restaurant, which is obviously you know, an understatement. There was another thing that you said earlier in this that I thought was surprisingly profound, which is an ant is a forager when it forages, just as I am a professor when I am doing professor-like things with the difference between an ant and me that even when not in front of a class or at the computer writing papers, I do a professor-like thing that only humans can do. I say I am a professor when asked. You know, you're pointing to an important distinction between the individual memory of a human being and therefore like the kind of the stability of identity that breaks at least some of the possible analogies that I think people would want to draw between ants and people. And and I'm I'm curious to hear you wax on that a bit. Yes, it's an important difference between people and ants is that we care a lot about our identity. And we don't have any evidence that an ant experiences itself as having an identity or that it experiences another ant as having an identity. So we have worked a lot on how ants use the rate at which they meet other ants to decide what to do. And it seems as though an ant doesn't care if it meets ant number 20 or ant number 566, because we can replicate the response to interactions by coating little glass beads with the appropriate smell and the ants will react the same way. So it doesn't seem as though ants have identity. And that might be a stretch to imagine for ants, but we don't expect that cells have an identity or you know that a neuron cares what everybody thinks about what it does. Whereas for us, identity is a really crucial component of sanity. You cannot function without having something to say about who you are all the time. If you, if you lose that, you're really in trouble. So that's a really profound difference between humans. And we don't know for other animals We know that they have many animals, not ants, but for example, mammals have longstanding relations with others. That doesn't really mean that they care what the others think about who they are in the same way that we do. So identity is a really a continuum and not an all or nothing thing. But 
in trying to understand how collective behavior works, it's interesting to try to understand what are the features of how it works that don't involve identity. The other difference between humans and everybody else in thinking about task allocation is that the idea of division of labor is dependent on learning. The value of division of labor in people is dependent on learning. It's because janitors can learn to do well at cleaning and chefs can learn to do well at cooking that switching around the janitors and the chefs might detract from the quality of the food served at a restaurant. So people learn to do jobs as they do them. And that makes a big difference. And that is the value of specialization. And that's the idea that Adam Smith raised when he introduced the notion of division of labor, that if one man makes boots and another man makes candles and another man is a farmer, then the one who is concentrating on making boots doesn't have to worry about making his own candles. And somebody can get good at making candles and somebody else can get good at making boots. That doesn't apply to ants or cells or most other collective systems. So ideas about division of labor in ants kind of took the notion of learning and folded it into some notion about genetic intrinsic superiority at doing a task. Uh, For example, the big ants might be able to lift a heavier thing or something like that. But we don't really have any evidence that an ant gets better at anything by doing it. So there's a a kind of philosophical strain that I see running through a lot of the work that's been coming out of SFI. And it's evident in this review paper of yours. It's also evident in Krakauer et al.'s piece on information theory of individuality, which they they make an open callback to process philosophy. You know, you talk about in in this piece the, the way that learning at the individual scale and then this other kind of learning that's going on at like evolutionary time scales kind of rhymes with the nature nurture debate and nature and nurture are the handles that the authors of the information theory of individuality gave to mutual information between a system and its past and future or mutual information between a system and its environment and so you know there is something to zoom out like several orders of magnitude and look at a human being today versus a human being maybe 200 years ago it seems like we are on a gradient in which we are sort of losing individual memory in favor of you know being able to google a search result with the extreme polar end of this process looking speculatively something like you know neo in the matrix just being able to download kung fu and you know i really appreciated in your 2014 ted talk the way that in doing your field work with these harvester ants you refer to the colonies with the feminine pronoun she you know you're talking about colony 154 that you know you have this relationship with the superorganism and it's an interesting question you know i mean it's sort of a question we can transpose back into the evolution of insect sociality you know at what point does the colonial identity kind of take over as the one with the personality, the one with the identity? You know, what forces do you recognize in that? And are we approaching that as a human species? You know, that's a much easier question for ants than for people because ants do (laughs) reproduce as colonies and ants don't make more ants. Colonies make more colonies. So colony has a queen, the queen lays the eggs, the workers help to rear them into adulthood, then they collect the food that feeds everybody, including the queen, and allows the queen to make reproductives that go and mate with the reproductives of other colonies to make new colonies. So in the evolutionary sense, 
an ant colony really is a reproductive individual. A colony mates, the reproductives of a colony that are produced by the work of all the colony mate with the reproductive of another colony and they produce a new colony. So it doesn't make sense to talk about a colony as an individual because that's how they reproduce in the same way that a tree reproduces or a, a squirrel, they reproduce like that as colonies. So now when you're talking about all humans, well, it's more complicated because we don't all mix and mate with each other. We're still divided by region and by how much we move around and by access to information and so on. And so we haven't really made a homogeneous single entity, but we are clearly moving towards more and more impact on each other. And climate change is an obvious example. So the way that people in one place impact the atmosphere has an effect on people someplace else, even though the people aren't really exchanging information. But I don't think it makes sense yet to think about you know, all the people on earth as something like an ant colony because we don't reproduce that way. So as a biologist, mm. it's, not, it's not quite there yet. <laughs> right, right. We have to be mating with some other planet and making a new, populating a new planet for the analogy to really hold up. Curious. Yeah. You know, I, I know that I'm probably trained on a, on a very eccentric model here. My inner David Krakauer wants to know whether it's actually the integrity of cultural information that marks a shift. You know, like something like only five to 10% of users on social media are content creators and everyone else is a content consumer. Yeah. And so, you know, anyway, just as an aside, it's, yes. you know, have we, yeah. have we crossed that kind of a threshold already? This seems like a good point to pivot into another piece that you wrote, and I want to eventually loop these ideas back into the first half of the conversation, but I'd like to hear you speak about this piece, essay you wrote for PLOS Biology, The Ecology of Collective Behavior. You identify uh, a couple of different ecological constraints that determine the algorithms used by different ant colonies. And I, you know, I, I think that most people know ants are really diverse, but that their behavior is also very diverse and that ant colonies living in a desert, very different from ant colonies living in a jungle. You go into some of the detail about why this is in this piece, and uh, I'd love to hear you provide an exegesis. It's because ants are so diverse that we have an opportunity looking at ants to see how collective behavior evolves in different conditions. And what we can see from ants, we can also see elsewhere in nature that collective behavior responds to changing conditions. And so there are correspondences between the ways that collective behavior has evolved in different systems to deal with the same conditions. So a very simple example is that when conditions are changing quickly, the system has to respond quickly. And so we see collective behavior that uses rapid interactions to get a rapid response in cells that respond to a wound in the same way that we see a rapid response in ants that live in the jungle where things are changing quickly and they have to respond to a new food source quickly before somebody gets it. So I've been exploring these correspondences, looking for ways that we can match up how collective behavior changes and how environments change. 
So I'd like to hear you speak a little bit about concretely these three constraints that you discuss in this piece, patchiness in space and time, operating costs, and threat of rupture. Because to me, these seem like three really good variables for anyone designing a system to bear in mind when they're designing the behavioral properties of that system. And, you know, like so much was coming up for me reading this. So yeah, just talking a little bit about that seems like a good point of entry to start trying to make some analogical leaps here. So the analogies would be in how collective behavior works. So remember that collective behavior always works without central control and that somehow local interactions in the aggregate produce the outcomes that we see. And the ideas in that paper and that I've been working with since are about how we might see the same process that links interactions, which you could call an algorithm, the same set of rules in different systems that are responding to the same kind of environment. So let's take uh, the distribution of resources. This is a familiar idea in ecology. So a simple way to think about it is in space, some species, some systems use resources that are very localized. So for example, the harvest ants that I study in the desert don't go for patches of seeds. They're food, they eat seeds, and the seeds are distributed by the wind and flooding. So they're just scattered all over. So they don't need a system for recruitment. They don't need a way that if one ant finds something, it interacts with other ants to get the other ants there. Because if an ant finds a seed, there's no reason to bring other ants there because there's not likely to be any more seeds in the same place. The seeds are not in patches. Then if you think about the ants on your kitchen counter, so the ants that invade our Buildings tend to be ones that use patchy resources or the ants that show up at a picnic. That your picnic is a windfall of great food. It's an opportunity. And so in order to exploit that, if ants find it, they use a system that gets other ants there quickly so that they can be the ones to get the picnic instead of the ants next door. So patchy resources require a more opportunistic system that can exploit them when they're found, whereas scattered, more stable resources don't need that. So if we look also at resources that are patchy in time, events that happen infrequently and all at once, those are the ones that need a response that can respond right away. So for example, fire for people is a fortunately a, a patchy event in time. We need to respond to fire and when it happens, it doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, we need to be able to mobilize a response right away. So patchy resources or patchy events require a rapid mobilization, whereas scattered ones don't. So you'd expect the collective behavior that deals with scattered resources is going to be different from collective behavior that deals with patchy resources. Operating cost has to do with energy flow. So when a system has to spend more than it's getting in, it's expensive to run the system. And it seems that systems that work like that have the default set not to do anything unless it's really worthwhile. So they tend to use positive feedback. So for example, back to the harvester ants, they live in the desert. They have to spend water to get water. An ant loses water out foraging in the sun, but the colony gets their water by metabolizing the fats out of the seeds that they eat. So it's expensive to go out foraging. You lose water for the water that you get back. 
So it's not worth it for the colony to go out and forage unless there's enough food to make it worthwhile for the water that they're going to lose. So that's a way of characterizing the operating costs or the energy flow that they use in foraging. And they have a system that requires positive feedback. An ant doesn't leave the nest unless it gets enough interactions with returning foragers with food. So basically, the system is set not to go unless it's really great out there and there's lots of food available and the ants are coming in with food. The default is to stop. If you think about the opposite situation where activity is easy, it's easy to keep going so you can get a lot for the amount that you're spending, then you might as well keep trying consistently unless you have to stop. And so that's a system that you'd expect to use negative feedback. That is to just keep going unless something really bad happens to stop it. And another uh, species of ant, the turtle ants that I uh, look at in tropical forest in Mexico are living in a very humid environment. It's easy to be out and around. And they have a system for maintaining and creating trail networks that just keeps going unless something bad happens. So we can see that different kinds of feedback are linked to different kinds of environmental constraints. This seems to me like it manifests in a fairly obvious way in the uh, variance between human personal dispositions, patchiness in space and time. You've got you know the uh, the 49er mentality. You're prospecting goes out and a new mine is discovered and there's a boom town and it attracts a certain kind of person that uh, tends to thrive within an, a loose regulatory architecture of the frontier. Right. right. Uh, you know, um, gamblers. Yeah. Right. Gamblers. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere in complex systems that it's like, it's riskier on the margins, but you get high risk, high reward. Yes. When in this paper, I loved what you said about that consistency in space and time provides the luxury of inflexibility. And, you know, it's funny because I think that in certain respects, and I tread lightly here, but it seems like at least in the United States, that this is related to kind of like intergenerational question mark. Uh, when I have conversations with my friends' parents that we grew up kind of anticipating a turbulent world. There's a great line. I can't recall the actual source for this quote, listeners, if you know, but it speaks directly to this question of phase transitions in collective behavior and task allocation, which is our grandparents had one job for their entire lives. Our parents had seven jobs throughout their lives. And now we have seven jobs at once. Yes. And so I don't know, this just random appendments to what you're saying here. Yeah. Well, flexibility takes work. Change takes work. So that's what I mean by that. There's a third one. The third one is the risk of rupture. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So another constraint is the risk of rupture. And risk has two sides to it. One is how bad is the bad thing that might happen? And the other is how likely is it to happen? So a not very bad thing that happens all the time it can be as bad as a really bad thing that hardly ever happens. So risk has those two components and a system has to deal with both so that there will be collective behavior to deal with a frequent but not very costly risks and a different kind of behavior to deal with catastrophic, rare risks. Well, you can definitely see that in people like I live in Northern California. We all know that a big earthquake is coming, but it's really easy to not do anything about it because it seems so rare as to be almost negligible. Um, in fact, we have little earthquakes, you know, every few weeks, but just learn to ignore that. Everybody driving around, you know, every time you get in the car, you deal with the possibility of accidents, most of which are small, but which could be catastrophic. And of course, we have a lot more process for dealing with the less 
terrible, but more frequent risks. And that's why we stop at stop signs and obey the traffic lights more or less and look before you cross the street and so on. So collectively, there's likely to be a process for managing the risk that's either frequent enough or bad enough to be worth having to deal with it. So in that, there's just such a fertile realm of discussion there. We did an episode last year with David Krakauer where we were talking about mass extinctions and market crashes and how the collapse of a network favors generalists who can kind of like hot swap into different behaviors, different niches, that you get these kind of like high culture moments in ecological richness where you see just massive specialization and uh, you know stable symbiosis. And then something like an asteroid or, you know, a protracted drought or something comes in, disrupts everything. And, you know, it's interesting in that when you're talking about something with like ants, the colony itself, and you mentioned this in this piece, the colony itself in its export of entropy, like in its stabilization of its own environment grows. And as it grows, the environment becomes more stable within it. And like this kind of task reallocation slows down. You know, we've spoken actually about some of the research that you did and cited in this piece on the scaling laws involved in ant colonies and how larger ant colonies have like a larger body of just sedentary ants. And there's kind of like multiple levels that I'm thinking about this all at once rather sloppily. <laughs> well, but, I think one idea that that helps with thinking about how a system responds collectively to risk is modularity. So modularity is a feature of how a network of interactions is structured. A network is more modular if there are clusters that are more linked to each other than to the rest of the network. And one way that a system might deal with risk is to become more modular so that if one cluster gets hit, there's still another cluster that isn't because it's not that connected to the cluster that got hurt or ruptured. So we design our uh, cell tower systems like that so that uh, if one cell tower goes out, it doesn't bring down the whole system because there's more local links to one cell tower that is not that well connected to some cell tower far away. So a way of managing risk is not exactly specialization, although the modules could be specialization, but just setting up the connections so that if one part gets hurt, the other parts can still function. So, you know, in discussing how to balance all of these things, I'd love to take a loop out to the work that you've done on the actual chemical regulation of these different behaviors, and specifically the role of dopamine in foraging. Because I think that this is one of those things that, I mean, we all know that high-risk behavior is associated with, you know, dope fiends, basically, that there's been work done, the biochemical profile of gamblers and financial traders <laughs> and so on. You know, one thing we've never talked about on the show before and, and really ought to is the explore-exploit tension. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how this is actually anchored in uh, brain chemistry. And as you mentioned in your 2014 TED Talk, the brain chemistry that you see kind of on average in a given ant colony varies from colony to colony, so that you really have some of these colonies that are kind of more thrill-seeking or risk-averse at the, at the yeah. level of the colony itself. Well, I can't say I've ever seen an ant look really thrilled about going out to forage, but they <laughs> do go out to forage, and how much they do go out to forage depends on 
their dopamine neurophysiology. And we have a lot to learn about this, but we can give ants dopamine and they are more likely to go out even when it's dry. So we already know that some colonies are more risk averse than others. Some colonies, when it's really dry outside, have ants that are less likely to go out to forage. So they are making the decision that in the trade-off between losing water and getting food, that losing water is worse and they just don't go out to get food. So colonies store food and it seems as though they can manage for a while without getting food. And if it's really dry outside, some colonies reduce foraging. Other colonies are more, uh, you know, you could say entrepreneurial, you could say, um, we've been talking about gambling, uh, whatever it is, they just keep going out no matter what. We found that colonies that are more likely to reduce foraging when it's dry, the workers actually lose water faster. So there's something about their body chemistry, uh, something about the way their exoskeletons are built that makes it a little easier for them to lose water. But we also find that those colonies that are more sensitive to water loss respond more to dopamine. So if you give them dopamine, they're more likely to increase the rate at which they go out. So it seems that there's this relationship between a colony's physiology that dictates how much it loses water and a colony's dopamine levels. And so dopamine somehow pushes the ant past the decision that it's not worth it to go out and the ant somehow doesn't care so much how dry it is and says, okay, never mind, I'm out of here. And it goes out looking for food. So there is some relationship between dopamine and its response to the risk of water loss. And we're working to find out more about that because there's a lot to learn about how that works. But it's not so much, of course, that the ant is going after the individual reward of food because remember that ants go out and get food and they bring it back. They don't eat it out there. They're not getting any kind of immediate reward. They bring it back to the nest and it's shared. So the individual reward response has been shaped into a kind of collective reward response. And the ants in some colonies are using dopamine as part of the process to decide whether it's worth it for everybody for that ant to go out. So to link this into another kind of angle on the relationship of these ideas to economics, we had Jay Doyne Farmer on the show a little short while ago. And one of the things that we discussed was following behavior in markets. Like we saw this recently and rather hilariously with mm -hmm. Elon Musk pumping Dogecoin on Twitter and like all of these retail investors got in, you know, following this cult of personality and, yeah. you know, and farmers... Research shows that this kind of behavior draws markets into uh, chaotic behavior, that things get kind of like at risk of seizure is like one way of thinking about it. So, you know, there's, it leads to greater instability. So this was a question on my mind in talking to Doyne Farmer, which is about, you know, with respect to operating costs, you look at something like Robinhood, uh, the trading app, or you look at you know, these cryptocurrencies. And one of the features that people are designing for in new financial instruments is low or zero transaction fees. Right. You know, so you're incentivizing this. And yet it doesn't seem as though making the barrier to entry with trading as low as possible is a great idea. It's a good idea for the people who profit off the chaos. <laughs> Fair. It's just not a good idea for everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, what you're saying is that there 
some of the feedback that would dampen the positive feedback that's leading people to follow each other. Some of the forces in the other way are being removed so that it's easier for the system to go to the brink of chaos or to keep going maybe past when it should. But of course, that is maybe not a good thing for the individual investors, but it might be profitable for some people. And I would imagine that that has to do with their thinking about whether to remove those operating costs or transaction costs. I think about Cordyceps mushroom that convinces its hosts, be they ants or whatever, to ignore the fear and, you know, (laughs) go climb the blade of grass, you know, and get eaten. Yes. But there's another angle on that, which is that low operating costs leads to high competition. Well, low operating costs could be associated with high competition. Yeah. In the tropical forest that I study, the turtle ants, there's a lot of competition that is associated with the diversity of the tropical forest. And really, it's an ecological mystery why the tropics are so diverse and why the very many species of ants, like everything else, are so abundant. And one idea about that is that the operating costs for living are low, that it's warm, that food comes easy, and so on. So there's an association between competition and easy activity for ants. But I don't think that the low operating costs cause the competition. Mm. The competition is there because there's so many species of ants and every available resource is used by many species. So many species are competing for resources. So because you've stressed this in uh, several of your papers and talks, I think it's worth taking a stop over at how you apply this to cancer and to you know the thinking around what's going on inside of the body, how cancer works, how we may be able to interfere with metastatic cancer and so on. And I know Michael Lockman did some work here recently on the evolution of costly signaling in cancer that I would just pin to this as a relevant follow-up search term for people. But yeah. Well, it's easy to see analogies between the diversity of ants and their collective behavior in different environments and the diversity of forms of cancer in the many different environments in the body in which it can happen. And we see that different forms of cancer work differently. There are some that are slow. There are some that are fast. There are some that metastasize. There are some that don't metastasize. So cancer isn't a single thing. It's a very diverse set of collective behaviors that involve cancer cells and healthy cells and all of the regulatory processes in the immune system and in development. So we sometimes forget that cancer cells didn't come out of nowhere. Cancer cells evolve from healthy cells. So the appearance of cancer at the level of a disease is the result of an evolutionary process. And it makes sense to think about how forms of cancer evolve to behave in a certain way in response to the particular ecological conditions in which they evolve. So we know that the behavior of a cancer cell, like the behavior of an ant, doesn't just arise from its genotype, but is very strongly determined by what happens around it. So there's lots of work showing that a particular kind of cancer can't grow into something that would reach the level of disease unless it meets certain kinds of environmental conditions, like amino cells work with the microenvironment of breast cancer cells. 
So we can ask, do we see the same kinds of correspondences between the way that uh, cancer works collectively, the way the cells work together to form tumors, to travel around, to initiate new metastatic tumors, and the ways that different species of ants or other natural systems work in similar conditions. So we talked about patchy and scattered resources. So there are some kinds of cancer that will metastasize only to particular tissues. So those cancer cells that leave the original tumor and go out on their journey to look for some new friendly place to settle down are looking for patchy resources that they find in some places, but not in others. And so you'd expect those kinds of cancer to have processes for recruiting, for uh, reacting quickly, for responding to a patchy resource, whereas uh, there are other kinds of cancer that will metastasize anywhere and still others, uh, such as ovarian cancer, and there's others like brain cancer that doesn't really metastasize. It can only grow where it is. So we could learn about how cancer operates and how it progresses by thinking about how it uses interactions with other cells to regulate the rate at which it can grow by thinking about the same kinds of questions, how it responds to the environment that it finds itself in. We don't typically talk about application on this show, (laughs) so much as theory, but I'm curious. I mean, you've been posing this for some time now, and I'm curious to know where, if anywhere, other researchers have kind of taken up your challenge and actually brought this into the development of cancer treatment. Well, I was recently asked to join a workshop uh, put on by the National Cancer Institute that was called Emergent Cell-Cell Interactions, and they put out a call for people to apply to this workshop, and there was an amazing array of cancer researchers who had come to work not just with me, but with other mentors and to work with each other to develop ways of thinking about cancer in terms of interactions among cells and how they behave collectively. And so I think there's really a lot of interest out there uh, because it's clear that it doesn't work just to try to kill as many cancer cells as you possibly can. And, you know, there's been a lot of recent interest in immunotherapy, which is the beginnings of an attempt to understand the interactions of cancer cells with the immune system and see if we could intervene in those interactions. So I think that there really is a lot of interest. People may not be talking about ants, the analogies with ants, but I think people are definitely very interested in thinking about how we could understand cancer as an ecological and evolutionary process and that that would make for much more intelligent treatments. Excellent. Well, you know, in my foraging for interesting insights, I feel like I've I've managed to acquire a nice parcel. And so in my my walk, right, right. In my walk back to the nest here, we're going to double back on this, you know, this question that loomed over uh, the first part of this conversation, which is, there's something between this movement between fixed identity and mutable identity that seems deeply related to the evolutionary transition between independent and colonial organisms. And uh, yeah, I just as a way of tying a bow on this conversation, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on you know the emergence of insect sociality and if you're interested for sort of glass bead game bonus points, how you'd connect that to the paradigm shift underway in the sciences and in the way that we're thinking about and describing these systems right now. I agree with Brian Arthur completely that it's crucial to understanding 
any system, an economic system or a natural system, to think about its dynamics rather than to think about what it's made of. And in biology, we know that everything alive is constantly changing and trying to explain what's going on by static attributes obviously doesn't work. So we started out in genetics by thinking that some sequence of DNA was sort of a set of instructions for what was going to happen. But we soon learned that genetic processes are context-dependent. Genes don't just do things, they only do things in certain situations. And of course, the activity of genes is connected to a lot of other kinds of metabolic and cellular activity. So it's obvious in biology that you can't understand what's going on without thinking about how it changes. Now, the idea that increasing change is somehow characteristic of an evolutionary transition, I don't know. Everywhere we look, even if we look in the evolutionary past, organisms have always been very entwined with each other in a dynamic way. So the idea of the evolutionary transition from independent individuals to more connected systems, I really think is a kind of a fantasy. I don't think anything was ever working independently. So I don't think that we're getting more interconnected or that evolution has been a sequence, a progression towards more connection. I mean, maybe if you go back, you know, the three and a half billion years to the bacteria that then joined together to make the eukaryotic cell, well, that was a major step. And the evolution of multicellular organisms, that was a major step. But the more we look at the incredibly diverse and elaborate connections between all kinds of microbes and fungi and bacteria and everything else, it seems like there's been a lot of dynamic interconnection going on for a long time. So I don't think that's anything new. I'm not sure if that was your question. No, it's more sort of the integrity of mutual information through time versus the integrity of mutual information between the organism and its environment. And there's in the the information theory of individuality, uh, these are points in their their simulation where you see something that you might call an individual, like a rabbit. You know, even though we know it's a a holobiont, it's a it's a community of communities yeah. of communities, and it's in it's exchanging genetic information horizontally in surprising ways that we've recently discovered and all this stuff. It's maybe a matter of degree rather than a matter of kind, like in what direction are things connecting with each other and how tightly or loosely. There's like the trade-off between individual and institution where, you know, as you discuss in this, like the threat of a rupture, you want redundancy, you want fungibility. So it's like the question of what are the major ecological constraints that lead to this shift from the individual ants being the reproductive unit to specializing a reproductive queen and you know forming this colonial identity it's not so much about interconnectivity broadly but just like it would be a bad idea for humans to put the chef in the janitor's role and, and vice versa it would be a bad idea for ants to develop an identity you know that there's a point at which the balance shifts i'm curious about that point i don't know well, there's a lot packed in there. And I think we need to think harder about the notion that the individual and its benefits come before the collective and its benefits, because realistically, there never was an ant by itself. The ants evolved 
from wasps and wasps have a whole spectrum of ways of working together, sometimes in colonies, sometimes not. So I think it's easy to get sidetracked by the idea that the individual gave something up to join the, the collective. So I take issue with that premise, um, which you know is very widespread in the literature, for example, on cooperative behavior in animals. There's been a lot of work asking, you know, why should the wild dogs bother to hunt with other wild dogs when they might get more if they were to just each kill a gazelle on their own and eat it? And that's based on the idea that somehow back in the past, there was that solitary wild dog that gave up all that extra meat just to join the pack. And that kind of thinking comes out of a history of thinking about a human society and why we should live together when we could each somehow do better, each of us in our own cave with our own pile of mammoth bones. But of course, that's absurd. We also could never have made it if we were each living alone. And so I think there's a lot there to think about in imagining this transition from trade-off, if you like, or cut-off between the advantages to individuals and the um, sacrifice to the collective good. So I've been thinking about that a lot in a book I'm writing about these ideas. And the more I think about it, the less realistic it seems to me to try to explain what happens using that idea of that trade-off. So I'm not completely sure if that's the trade-off you're talking about, but that's the trade-off that I have trouble with. Fair. The sacrifice of the individual f- for the collective good. Yeah. I mean, clearly there's a benefit to the individual to participate. And there's more than one axis along which to evaluate cost and benefit, if that's even the correct way to frame it. But no, it's it's sort of, I guess, in this question, if the individual is making any sacrifice, it's simply the sacrifice of its timescale across which it's aggregating memory and thus identity. And I don't know that I necessarily consider that a sacrifice more than more than just, you know, it's just like an, an, an adaptation to being more easily allocated to a new task, you know, as the, yeah. as it's, it's yeah. contract with the colony demands. Maybe another way to, to talk about this is to remember that identity is relative to everybody else. The more elaborate idea you have of who you are, is really an idea about how you reflect off of all the other people around. So if you were really alone, you couldn't have an identity because there wouldn't be anything to have an identity relative to. So our ideas of ourselves as independent selves are always in relation to the other independent selves. And so in fact, it's an illusion for us to imagine that we have some essential properties that have nothing to do with the matrix that we're in. Mm. Well, I hope that we managed to get the seed back to the nest. (laughs) I'll leave that for listeners to decide. Deborah, it's been a pleasure. I I really deeply appreciate you indulging all of these bizarre questions and uh, taking the time to share your work with everyone today. Thank you. It's a really interesting discussion. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.